This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Alex Oline. Part of what I was thinking about had to do with um, what it's like to be an artist, what it means to be an artist, and especially what it means for a woman to decide that she wants to make art. In what ways do people get permission to be artists? And in what ways do they not get that kind of permission? We'll hear more from Alex Olin in just a few minutes. I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. Some of the extras you will receive this month for donating include author Alex Olin talking about how she starts novels by finding a portal where she can enter the story and what features she looks for to know if she has enough traction to continue. You will also receive a writing tip from Taya Obrett, including the rituals she employs while composing, and much more. If First Draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, you can donate at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 First Draft shows. So come visit and listen. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Alex Olin, author of five books, including the novels Inside, The Missing Person, and Signs and Wonders, and the short story collection Babylon and Other Stories. She is the chair of the creative writing program at the University of British Columbia. Her latest novel, Dual Citizens, tells the story of sisters Lark and Robin, who grow up in Montreal basically on their own, as their mother, Marianne, is an absent single parent. Because of their home life, these sisters with different fathers form a nearly unbreakable bond during childhood that is tested when Lark leaves Canada to go to college in America. As the sisters navigate their growth into adulthood, their relationship goes through various stages of connection and disconnection. All the while, both are artists. Lark is a filmmaker and Robin is a piano player, and both struggle with what it means to commit to the path of an artist and question if that is the right life for them. We began the discussion with Alex Olin sharing what compelling questions drew her to the page when starting to write Dual Citizens. Uh, one of the questions that I was thinking about a lot, and, I, and I'm not sure I could even have articulated it in an explicit and conscious way at the time, 
for me, a lot of the way writing works is that your preoccupations only become apparent to you after the fact or through the process of writing. But uh, I do think a big part of what I was thinking about had to do with um, what it's like to be an artist, what it means to be an artist, and especially what it means for a woman to decide that she wants to make art. In what ways do people get permission to be artists? And in what ways do they not get that kind of permission? What are the obstacles? What are the obstacles to even thinking about yourself as an artist or being sort of um, egocentric enough to imagine that that's something that a person might do and and realizing that there might be a gendered component to the ways that that permission is given or not given in the world. And uh, so both of the women in the book have, well, a lot of the people, but the two main characters uh, have artistic desires and the way that they kind of make their paths through the world um, sort of idiosyncratic and, and based on their own um, decisions about whether or not they're going to follow those paths conventionally or not. How does having questions like that start translating into these living, breathing characters? How did that turn into Lark and Robin and these two sisters who grew up in near Montreal and ended up in America for majority of the book? I'm not a big outliner and I'm not a big sort of decider on things before I write. So um, I began the book with a section that actually wound up being in the middle of the book. But I began with a, just a, a sentence that sort of stuck in my mind, like begin with the missing. And I began with the moment um, when the, the two sisters kind of separate um, and Robin, who's sort of a free spirit, she winds up um, leaving the apartment that they share and going off and, and traveling the world for, for a time. That was the moment that I started with, um, this idea that um, two sisters who have been close, um, their paths are gonna diverge and it's gonna take them some time to, to get back. Um, get back together. And I thought, well, what does that mean really um, for one of them to go missing? And why does it matter so much to the other? It must mean that their relationship is really foundational. It must mean that the love that they have for each other is, is really important. So I started to sort of sketch around that and think, well, why would they be so close? Maybe they didn't have very attentive or um, diligent parents. Maybe they really sort of raised each other. Maybe they were sort of feral, you know, like kittens or like wolves. And then I started thinking about that. And um, so kind of through the writing of scenes and the moving back into the past and kind of exploring what their whole lives and childhood might have been like, that's how I started developing the characters and thinking about these two sisters who um, are so close. I'm wondering if you want to talk about sort of the forward thrust of the book. The book is, is told by by Lark, and, and she's, she's kind of telling it as an adult, but looking back, starting from childhood all the way, all the way up through, um, through teen years and young adulthood and um, up until the point where she becomes a parent herself um, in her late 30s and kind of making sense of uh, what has happened to her and, and especially in relationship to her sister. And, and I, I really conceived of the book as being a love story between these two sisters and that their relationship between the two of them would have the same kind of charge and immediacy that you might find in like a romance plot, right? So they, they are in love and so close um, to one another 
um, as children, and then they go through a period of like estrangement or turbulence or difficulty in their um, in their lives, but um, they wind up kind of coming back together and, and realizing that um, they are each necessary to to the other. And then at the same time, while that's happening, each of them is sort of struggling to figure out what it means for them to want to be an artist and to have some kind of professional career. So Lark is very kind of introverted and shy, and she's really drawn to film, but she's not someone who's going to have like a splashy extroverted type career. She's not going to be an actress. She's maybe not even comfortable being a director because that would involve like bossing other people around. And so she really finds herself um, in the more invisible position of being an editor and it really speaks to her that capacity to kind of stitch things into shape um, uh, on a machine or at a computer and uh, to make sense of an image and of a story through editing and meanwhile Robin is um, really drawn to music she's sort of preternaturally talented a sort of genius level pianist and uh, for a time it looks like she's going to follow a traditional career as a concert pianist and then she winds up just sort of walking away from, from all of that and it kind of living off the grid in, in a way. And um, uh, she doesn't abandon music, but she abandons the idea of a professional relationship to music and of performing in front of an audience or in any way being sort of conventionally acclaimed. She's just not interested in any of that. So that's kind of the general trajectory of um, who they are and where they go. You mentioned Lark and she is uh, she is the quiet observer and she has very early on she has this line where she says she practiced the art of subtracting herself she was talking about being in class and not raising her hand and the way you characterized her as sort of off to the sidelines not very aggressive what was your interest in writing about this type of character and I'm also wondering if you felt like that was necessary to have a character like that to narrate this novel. It made more and more sense to me the more I the more I got into it. She's a very observant character. She's an observer, and she's she's much more comfortable um, observing than being observed, almost to an extreme degree. So I think like observers make for good narrators because they're watching everybody um, everybody around them, but they sometimes can be troubling protagonists because they can be a little bit passive. So Lark is a good, um, she starts from this point of view of, of invisibility, but then she has to, she has a journey to go on, right? She has room to grow because she has to eventually figure out how to assert herself in in the world in in some way and and she does i think you know eventually make those those steps um and with robin it's interesting like robin is the opposite she's someone who acts rather than thinks and she just um very sort of um, more spectacular in her behavior and uh, more strange in a lot of ways and originally i had tried writing the book and sort of uh, if not alternating chapters, like um, some different sections, and some of them were going to be from Lark's um, point of view, and some were going to be from Robin's point of view, and then the two would sort of mesh together. And the stuff that I wrote from Robin's point of view just didn't make any sense at all. It just didn't work, mainly because she wasn't the kind of person who was going to look back and reflect on her choices and kind of ponder them and, and brew over them. You know, she's just not that kind of character. So there was no real reason for her to be telling the story. She's like the kind of person who's like pretty satisfied with their life choices and does whatever she wants. And so it made more sense to kind of look at her 
through Lark. So Lark would tell both their stories, both Robin's story and her own, and try to make sense of the disconnect between them as well as the places where they overlap. I want to go back to that idea of siblings because, you know, as you explained, they were both artists. Robin was a pianist and Lark was a filmmaker, wanted to be some sort of filmmaker. And, you know, all along they were also supporting themselves. Um, Robin had to escape after Lark went to school um, in New York. She had to leave um, her family because there was kind of a predation situation going on with her mother's boyfriend towards her when she was just about 15 years old. And so she came to New York. And so Lark was kind of saving her in that moment. And they lived together. And through adulthood, they had various times when Lark was taking care of her, when they found solace in each other. The question came up, what can we ask of our siblings? And I'm wondering, from your point of view, was that also something you were asking of this novel of how much can you maybe expect out of this relationship? And if so, did you find an answer? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think people, people have all kinds of relationships with their siblings, some close, some not close, but when you, when you do have uh, a lifelong intimacy with a sibling, there is a kind of simultaneous experience of time that you have with each other. Like in my own family, like I'm very close to my, well, I'm close to all my siblings. And when I look at them, I, I see them as they are now, but I also see them as they were in their 20s and their teens and in childhood. Like all those past selves are in the room with us in some ways, and and I'm sure that's um, consciously or not uh, true of them when they when they look at me as well. So there's an experience of both seeing and feeling seen that um, can be really important with with siblings. And then in terms of like what you can what you can expect. Uh, that's a, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that Robin and Lark, these particular siblings, they rely on each other because, you know, for much of their lives, they don't have anybody else, right? Their mother is unreliable at best. Their fathers are absent. The father figures, including the kind of sketchy boyfriend that you mentioned, are not, you know, they know enough to know that they shouldn't have anything to do with him. Uh, so the circumstances of the world in many ways, like force them to rely on, on each other for lack of other, of other options. (laughs) And then they wind up sort of embracing that too. So, you know, there's that kind of trite saying like family are the people who, you know, uh, are required to take you in. (laughs) And maybe that's, um, that's partly true here, but it's also true that, um, because of the way that they grow up, they're kind of, um, they have a self-enclosed relationship that they don't have with, with anybody else. So who else would they turn to when they're in need but each other? It, it raised for me kind of the question of parody, and, and that is impossible. I mean, you can't go through life between siblings and say, well, I gave you the ball this day, and you made my dinner this day, and find parody. But, I mean, Lark was generally more of the caretaker, and a lot of times... I don't know if Robin was that conscious of what Lark was maybe giving up or how much she was offering to Robin when Robin needed it. And there were times when Robin really turned away from her. And so there were times when there was no sense of parody, even if you're not doing tit for tat. But then there's also moments when someone might come around and do something so big for a sibling that it kind of makes all the other things um, less less important when you see the compromises that they make. And that happened in your book. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I never thought about the question of like, you know, tit for tat or, or trading or anything. I, I did think of like family dynamics and how early they're set and how often they can feel so so cemented uh, from a very young age. So because Lark is older, because she takes care of her sister when they're very young, that's a role that she's continually occupying because it feels comfortable. And Robin is used to being the person who has taken care of. And I think that's very true to a lot of, you know, sibling relationships and dynamics. Like you could be, you know, full-blown adults who haven't seen each other in ages and you get in the room together and you immediately slip back into whatever role, you know, you were used to occupying as, as, as children. Um, so as a novelist, I think I'm, I'm interested in, in that, but I'm also interested in like patterns and the way that patterns recur in our lives. So not only are they experiencing these patterns like with each other, patterns of behavior, but also then enacting them in other relationships. And what are the moments that might come along in your life that would explode that? Or as you said, like be big enough to change that. And there is something like that in this book. That's like a moment when Lark is so in need and her life is so kind of splintered and shambled that she um, needs to completely change the pattern and ask for help. And be, because they're so close, that is a moment when that shift is able to occur. So I want to talk a little bit more about Lark's life and the trajectory of her life. I mean, when she was young, until she was 18, she did a lot of caretaking for Robin, made sure she got into piano, nurtured that in her, didn't do much for herself. But when she got away and she got to college against many odds and got a scholarship in in America, we see that she starts to formulate more ideas of her own. And she kind of was, to me, where she sort of alighted on something that really sparked her was when she took a film class in college. And her film professor was named Olga, who was a Russian emigre to the U.S., who was a filmmaker. And in some ways, I felt like she carried a lot of really big ideas that you were getting across. She she focused a lot on the idea of nostalgia and sort of longing for a past that maybe didn't even exist. And so I want to talk uh, first about what it was about film for you that you wanted to put this in the book and then talk about Olga. It's funny because I toyed with different ideas for what Lark would fall in love with in college. And it wasn't originally going to be film. And I tried out different things. And um, there was a whole like early draft that involved computer science. <laughs> and uh, she spent a lot of time in a, in a lab. And I spent a lot of time researching that. And the scenes just never really came to life. They never really worked well. I couldn't find like the traction. Then when I started writing about film, which is something that I personally, um, I have no professional expertise in, but I just really have always loved movies and the experience of sort of losing yourself in the world of a movie. When I started to write something about that, I was like, oh, well, this is something that I could really go deeper into as a writer. And I'm interested myself in exploring the ways that it mirrors or doesn't the other stuff that I'm that I'm doing in the book. And then it, it really clicked for me, as you say, when I introduced this character of, of Olga. And she is kind of uh, another untraditional mother figure in the book in the sense that she's, she's like an older woman. She's a mentor. She's hugely important in Lark's life, but she's not like super warm and fuzzy or anything. She's not a, a traditionally maternal person in any of the ways that we conventionally describe um, people as being maternal. She's very intellectually rigorous, and she really um, 
she really brings Lark into this uh, into this world of film and film history and discussion of ideas. And for Lark, I think she, um, I love the idea of sort of portraying an intellectual love <laughs> in, a, in a novel. Like that's something that's so important when you go to college and you discover the thing that you want to study. Like it's such a huge moment. You can feel your mind sort of flow up if it happens to you, right? And it does for Lark and, the, and getting to sort of write that, the headiness of that moment and the passion of it was, um, was very fun and, and it was compelling, at least for me as, as the writer. And then the, the way I was able then to bring in through Olga's work, these ideas about nostalgia and how often memory connects to loss and how um, films can be a kind of relic or testament to things that we have lost and stories that we wanna see retold. Um, those ideas were just super fascinating to me and I, I really loved playing with them in, in the book. I, I felt like Olga, and I read something you wrote recently where she is based on a, a true Russian filmmaker, but in the very beginning when she very first meets Lark, she comes into the class, they don't really watch a movie, and she starts lecturing, and the first thing that Lark wrote down was, nostalgia is a rebellion against the modern idea of time it is a romance with the fantasy of loss and she wrote it down and she didn't even really know what it meant and throughout the book this idea of nostalgia comes back again and again I I would find myself often writing notes when Olga came in about things she said that I wanted to ask you about or things that just made me think a lot I'm curious about the the relationship between nostalgia that you're writing about and then the nostalgia that maybe you were imbuing in the book, maybe because it does encapsulate such a big part of their lives or because it's kind of a longing for something that's sort of impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I love playing with those ideas. As, as you said, um, the character of Olga, not not so much in her character, but but her work is based on uh, an actual person, a woman named Svetlana Boym, who was a, a scholar and professor at Harvard and who was also from Russia. And she wrote this book called The Future of Nostalgia, which I really loved. And it's kind of part cultural criticism. It's also part of memoir. It's part um, partly about art. It's, it's really beautiful. And it talks about her own experiences um, as, you know, someone who moved from uh, Russia to Europe and then to the United States and the whole idea of an imagined homeland um, and the whole idea that any home is kind of necessarily um, constructed and um, subjective. And there's a, such a tone of melancholy and longing in it and I just I just have always really loved the book and she also talks about she does a sort of history of nostalgia and one of the things that she writes about is um, that nostalgia used to be considered an actual medical condition like a diagnosable medical condition and it was um it was like a heart ailment and the idea that heartbreak could be literal like nostalgia could also be a literal ailment that that you have and I thought boy that's so true like it is a kind of palpable feeling a sensation that you have in in your body when you're nostalgic so um so I started thinking about that and I started thinking about well what does it mean for a character who's reflecting on her past to be nostalgic it doesn't necessarily just means simply that you look back on your life with rose-colored glasses and you think that everything used to be better. What it means is that there's something that you care about that is inextricably connected to a feeling of loss. 
And there's a kind of like pleasure pain thing going on where you're thinking about something great, but you're also feeling sad. And I'm, I'm always drawn as a novelist to that kind of emotional layering. Um, and I think it's a very rich place for a character to be in. So for Lark, like she didn't have a great home. She moves away from home. Both these sisters, they're always moving all over the place, trying to figure out like, what is my home? You know, what does it mean to find a home? And did I ever have a home? And, um, and when you ask those questions, you're really trying to figure out like who you are and where you belong. So all of that for me is wrapped up together in the question of nostalgia. And going back to your question about artists and what does it mean to be an artist and that initial push, you could say on some level that neither sister ended up being the artist they wanted to be. Lark did spend some time editing film but after a bunch of time working with kind of a famous documentary filmmaker, she ended up editing reality TV, which, you know, there's no judgment about it. But when she started off in a certain place, she didn't end up there. And she kind of maybe didn't end up there because she didn't maybe pursue it in the way she could have or she just didn't have the aggression and motivation and ambition she needed to get there. And Robin probably did have the talent, but she turned away from it. Uh, in a more purposeful way. It's like maybe she could have had it, but she just didn't want it. Whereas Lark maybe could never have had it and she was just close to it. And so I think it's interesting that they didn't really end up artists, but I'm curious about your, your take on that. To me, it's not a narrative of failure. It's more a narrative of deciding to set your own terms and uh, figuring out what the terms of engagement are for you with the world in terms of making art. So for Robin, um, you know, she does begin along the track of an extremely uh, conventionally successful career. As you said, she's accepted to Juilliard. She has, you know, all the um, ability to make that happen. And, uh, but she's such a ferociously independent minded person and someone who evades all kinds of control especially by men and she has like male teachers and mentors. Um, she just can't stand it. And she doesn't like the idea of just being the female concert pianist who wears a fancy gown and gets up on a stage and has to perform for an audience that's going to applaud. She just, um, she just hates that. She hates the idea of the gaze and of the performance. So instead, like she, you know, becomes a traveler and then, you know, a waitress and does all kinds of much, you know, weirder things than that. Um, but she doesn't stop playing music and she doesn't stop being a musician. She just does it um, on her own property in this old barn with ramshackle pianos that she collects as they're abandoned by other people. And she performs for, you know, basically the sparrows in the rafters and records the music on cassette tapes and doesn't really listen to them. And in my mind, that's her own exact kind of wild vision of what being an artist or making art should be. And she is completely satisfied by it. So I see it as a narrative of, of success, even though I understand that it doesn't actually look like your traditional story of successful art making. And then for Lark, there's sort of a similar thing where she does, you know, for a time, she totally subsumes herself behind the career of this successful male um, filmmaker. And that's not a healthy situation for her at all. But when she winds up moving into making documentary, and sorry, not documentary, uh, re reality TV uh, editing, 
for her, that's very satisfying of every itch she has as an editor. And she loves, you know, just being the person who sits in the cubicle, like making sense of these scenes, finding the drama through editing. It's a kind of like craftsperson's joy that she takes in it. Where again, as you say, it's not like the avant-garde film stuff that she was, you know, uh, experimenting with in college, but it feels deeply right for her and the way that she wants to be in the world. And you could see in the scenes, once Lark was doing editing on these reality shows, she really found joy in it. She put her whole being into it and thinking about the way to make the cut and the way to bring emotion into the story. Towards the end, you have this section where you're talking about she's back with Olga and Olga is telling her about her book, which is called The Epistemology of the Cut. And she's looking at editing and how we accept the abrupt displacement in space and time as a given of narrative, when in fact, it was a constant. And she was looking at kind of what is artificial and what is real. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this in terms of of narrative. Editing is so as important in writing as it is in film. And that these things that seem, maybe at first they seem natural, but they're not natural when you really look at them. And I'm wondering if you were thinking about that at all with writing, even though you were writing about film. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. There's there's a couple of great books that I found about film editing that were so interesting to me. I started off by reading this um, book of conversations between Michael Ondaatje and Walter Murch, who's a very famous film editor who edited The English Patient. And it's conversations about editing in which they talk a lot about the commonalities between literary storytelling and cinematic storytelling and how much editing is a process of discovery and of uncovering the story that you want to tell. And it's just a fascinating book. And then I went on to read this other um, really short but super brilliant book that Walter Murch, the film editor, wrote called In the Blink of an Eye. And that's where I got the stuff about the cut as, as sometimes it could be a joining or a disjunction. And you can think of it either way. And what are you trying to accomplish when you cut from one thing to another? Are you trying to bring two things together or are you trying to create a feeling of separation? And I was really taken with that. And I think it totally connects to ways that we think about literary storytelling and, and narrative. So I started with that. And then I um, moved on to ideas about how all stories are constructed all stories that we tell about the world, like the idea that there's no such thing as a 100% objective documentary story about anything, right? Because everything takes a position, everything is edited or sculpted or, or created. And then as I started to think about Lark as a mother, I thought, well, isn't this true of families too? Aren't families also constructed and chosen and edited and shaped into being? And there's no such thing as like one single natural shape for a family to take either. So suddenly I found all these resonances across different like strands or scenes in the book. And I was like, oh, this is great. It's all one thing. It's all coming together. <laughs> it's always like a good feeling when you're, when you're writing and you find that you can weave things that were separate together in a kind of braid. Did it change how you edit your writing either in this book or as your as your writing career has gone on since you've read these books? Yeah, I think it's given me um, permission to write in the way that I always wanted to write. And and Andate talks about that a lot, how he doesn't really outline. He just uh, free writes um, for a really long time or writes drafts and just, you know, writing becomes the process of discovery for himself. And that 
increasingly, I mean, that's always been sort of my tendency, and increasingly I have no shame about announcing it <laughs> on, say, a literary podcast, that I, I could never think of an outline and that I um, discover the work or the preoccupations through the writing, and then gradually with each successive draft, I'm rewriting, I'm editing, I'm cutting, I'm finding the shape like inside the thing itself rather than trying to impose something in advance, like from the beginning. So you mentioned earlier that Lark spent uh, a lot of time with this male documentary filmmaker. His name was Wheelock. She met him when she was in graduate school and ended up abandoning graduate school for a variety of reasons to work with him. But she was always in his shadow. So she was continuing on sort of her proclivity to be the one that's subtracting herself. And she did great work and they actually ended this romantic relationship that wasn't like solidified as, yes, this is my boyfriend and yes, this is gonna who I'm going to live my life with. It was kind of a looser arrangement, but she did it for, I think it was over a decade. Can you talk about this aspect of the novel? She's drawn to this character of Wheelock, um, I think in part because he has this this atmosphere, this aura of artistic greatness, and it's very compelling to her. She she loves his work, right? He is kind of known for these um, strange, sort of avant-garde, independent films. And um, I, I I was really interested in dramatizing that kind of attraction. That's I mean, it's partly physical for her, but it's very much so a kind of intellectual or artistic attraction that she has to him. And it's almost like getting, you know, sucked into a planetary orbit. And he is a figure of artistic eccentricity. Like he has this really weird like farmhouse that he lives in and he keeps very strange hours and he wears these really dilapidated clothes. And he's, um, he's, he's, very comfortably inhabits a lot of ideas that we might have about what a genius looks like. And I think the the dynamic between them is one of someone who starts out as a helper and then never, she never emerges right into her own artistic self. She just, you know, all too easily puts everything that she thought that she might do with her own art aside and becomes his helpmaker. And it's just like the temptation to do that and the temptation to remain forever the assistant or the person doing uncredited work behind the scenes, um, I think um, was something I was interested in, in writing about, like both the benefits of it and the, and the drawbacks. And um, she learns a lot, right? And she really perfects her craft, but she also never is fully like self-realized during that time. But I was also interested in like, at the time I was reading a lot about um, the history of women as editors in the film industry and how many great editors there have been who are really like integral to the success of a lot of famous um, films and directors like, Scorsese and Woody Allen and W. Price have had all these, you know, partnerships with women who did the editing um, that were hugely important to the success of those works of art. And yet it's the directors whose names we know and who tend to be famous and the names of the female editors are much less familiar to, to people. So that was sort of interesting to me, too, as a way of kind of excavating, like, the invisible history of, of film and the role that women have played in it. So one of the things that after she left Wheelock, this filmmaker, um, that pushed, it really pushed Lark to find her true vision, which was she wanted to have a child. And that yearning that you write about for her to have a child is, 
it's so real. It's her time of life. It's just something that's common to so many women. And it's just such a powerful thing. It's like you will do anything to get this. Can you talk about writing about that yearning? And if you if you experienced it yourself, I know you do have a child. Yeah, I do have a child. Yeah. And I think I, I similarly to Lark in this book, came to it kind of late uh, in the sense that I didn't my whole life Uh, drag around dolls or think like, when I'm a mom, I will do X. It wasn't like a huge part of my sense of self as I was growing up and and neither was it um, for Lark. But um, there gets to be a point for her when she's like in her in her 30s, she's 35, which is kind of like, it's like this deadline (laughs) that that the world imposes uh, for women where you really have to make a decision. And it's something that much more often is experienced by women than men. Like if you're going to have a child, you got to do it now or it's now or never. Are you going to be this thing or are you not going to be this thing? And this is a point of sort of no return in some ways. Um, so she, she comes up against that pretty abruptly and it's surprising to her. It's shocking to her. And I was interested in, in dramatizing that experience uh, for, for a character. And um, she really questions for herself, like, how did I not know this about myself, that this was a thing that I wanted? And is it because... I had this strange mother that I didn't know that being a mother was a thing that people wanted. Or do I want it so badly now because I did have that kind of mother and I want to be a replacement for it? And she's kind of turning over these. They're such intense questions, right? And and the consequences are so enormous. Like if you do become a mother, you have a child and it's not like, I don't know taking up a new hobby. It's like a permanent thing that involves another human being. So the stakes feel very, very high. Um, and uh, and the kind of ache that she has for it's very physical. It's very much like a bodily experience for her. And and then she winds up going through fertility treatments. And that's something that, although there's a lot more openness in our culture about it now, I, I still think that that can be hard for women to talk about. And it's not an experience that I had read a lot of fiction about. So I was interested in um, just sort of testifying to that as a, as a thing that happens to women and that can be very important to them, that can be very empowering for women to have fertility treatments and wind up having a baby if they weren't able to do so another way. And again, thinking through like unconventional ideas about how a family is made. At the end, when she's having her baby, Robin really helps her in a way that is pretty major to to help her have her dream of having a family. And one of the things that asked it, it made me wonder is like maybe how what is too much to ask of someone? What kind of relationship do you have to ask that? And and what if the thing we're asking might compromise someone else's? either integrity or health or their own plans for their life? Is it still okay to ask? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I, I think that, um, you know, Lark is a, is a character who isn't used to asking anybody for anything. Like her whole life, as, you know, as in that line that you quoted, she's, she's subtracted herself from the world. She's never tried to impose herself. She's always worked on the behalf of other people. She's always kept herself invisible. So what is the thing that you would want badly enough that would lead you to ask something super, super major? It would have to be something that feels almost life or death to you. Um, and for, for her, like having a baby is that thing. It's the thing that she would want badly enough to impose, to impose her desires upon the world and to ask someone to help her. Yeah, and and to me, it also goes back to sort of this idea of you can find your agency maybe when you find your true life path. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I'm I'm hoping there's like a suggestion at the end of the book that 
Um, she has finally found her true subject as uh, of her art. Like she's the last thing she does is literally film film people, and um, that this is a, a moment of her becoming herself. And it's both as a mother and as an artist and as an observer, which is you know who she really is in in the world. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I have a passage here from one of my favorite short stories, Sunny's Blues by James Baldwin. And it's um, about siblings, it's about brothers, and it's um, one of the brothers very troubled, Sonny. Um, he's, a, he's a pianist. And this is a moment near the end of the story when the narrator um, goes to hear him play the piano in a bar. All I know about music is that not many people ever really hear it. And even then, on the rare occasions when something opens within and the music enters, what we mainly hear or hear corroborated are personal, private, vanishing evocations. But the man who creates the music is hearing something else, is dealing with the roar rising from the void and imposing order on it as it hits the air. What is evoked in him, then, is of another order, more terrible because it has no words, and triumphant, too, for that same reason. And his triumph, when he triumphs, is ours. I just watched Sonny's face. His face was troubled. He was working hard, but he wasn't with it. And I had the feeling that, in a way, everyone on the bandstand was waiting for him, both waiting for him and pushing him along. But as I began to watch Creole, I realized that it was Creole who had them all back. He had them on a short rein. Up there, keeping the beat with his whole body, wailing on the fiddle with his eyes half-closed, he was listening to everything, but he was listening to Sonny. He was having a dialogue with Sonny. He wanted Sonny to leave the shoreline and strike out for the deep water. He was Sonny's witness that deep water and drowning were not the same thing. He had been there, and he knew, and he wanted Sonny to know. He was waiting for Sonny to do the things on the keys, which would let Creole know that Sonny was in the water. Can you tell me a little more about why you chose that? I just really love the way that... Baldwin writes about music and the experience of hearing music. And I thought a lot about like, how do you describe what it's like to listen to music? And when I was writing uh, Dual Citizens, I was trying to describe the experience of you know, hearing your very talented sister play the, the pianist. And what, what I took from this section of Baldwin is that he doesn't actually say like he hit an A flat or, you know, he was uh, striking a bass chord. Instead, it's, um, it's describing the emotional experience of the music as a way of explaining uh, the scene and that the language itself is so lyrical and so rhythmic that it creates the feeling of music on the page. I think it's the best writing about music that I've ever read. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. So this is a section from the beginning of the book. So Lark and Robin have been sharing an apartment in New York City. And Robin has spent the summer performing in Europe. And this is Lark talking. In New York, I waited for Robin's return. I hadn't heard from her during her trip, and I'd had to imagine her summer for myself. Now I was restless with anticipation wanting to know how closely the reality would conform to the pictures in my mind. But Robin wasn't doing any of the things I'd imagined. She wasn't testing the keys of the ramshackle piano 
feeling its bones shift as she rehearsed before rows of empty red velvet seats in an auditorium that had been resplendent a hundred years ago. She wasn't nursing a coffee at an outdoor cafe, steadying herself for the evening performance, or sipping some aromatic liqueur the owner insisted she should try at least once. She wasn't dipping her toes in foreign rivers. She wasn't playing Rachmaninoff to adoring crowds. She wasn't holding Bernard's hand as they walked over a footbridge in the early morning, his hair skunky with potent local hash, their eyes pleasantly glazed. She wasn't thinking about me back in New York. She wasn't getting ready to come home. And why did you choose that? I chose it because it was hard for me to write the moment when Robin and Lark would fall apart because their relationship was so foundational, both to themselves as characters and also to my conception of the book. So how would you write about absence? How would you write about a moment when one character doesn't know what the other is doing? And how do you write about missing? So I came uh, across this idea of writing about her own imagined vision of, of Robin and, and then writing it in this negative, like she wasn't doing this, she wasn't doing that. And I thought of it as kind of doing like a reverse image or like a pressing of the shape of, of Robin in, in Lark's mind. And once I hit on that, I was like, oh, that, that works for me. And I was happy. Where do you write? I write all over the place. I sometimes write in bed. And these days I mainly write in a Starbucks that's on my way to work. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I feel like my whole life is basically taking me away from writing. So it's not hard for me to do it. And the, the more challenging thing is how to find my way back to it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to my agent, Amy Williams, who's wonderful. And she's often my, my first editor. And because I've worked with her for so long and she knows my work so well, we have a kind of shorthand. And she's very direct and she can tell me without my feeling hurt or offended, this is working or this is not working. And we have a lot of, uh, or I have a lot of trust in her as a reader, which is so important. And how have you dealt with rejection? I mostly deal with it by having more than one thing going at the same time. So if there's one story that's been sent out to magazines, I have another story that I'm working on. If I'm revising something, I have something else that's at an earlier stage so that there's always a feeling of possibility of something else that might work out better. And what is your favorite word? One word I find myself overusing lately is the word fraught. It keeps coming to my mind, so I think I have to declare a, a moratorium on the word fraught for the next few months until I get it out of my system. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Alex Olean, author of Dual Citizens. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Sarah Stone, who also writes about artists and family ties. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Alex Olean for your membership is how she looks for moments of unease in her narrative to find traction in the work, 
and how she took one of the elements of what she finds most pleasurable as a reader and folded that craft element into her novel, Dual Citizens. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming up in the next few episodes are interviews with Terry Tempest Williams about her essay collection Erosion and Patina Gappa discussing Out of Darkness, Shining Light. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.